You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. We're thankful to have uh, Tyson and our worship team back last or this week. We missed them last week and uh, certainly felt their absence and so thankful to have them uh, back with us this week. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, you missed a sermon that dealt with uh, whether we should eat roadkill or not, and whether we should boil baby goats in their mom's milk. So depending on who you ask, your absence was either a good thing or a bad thing last week. I don't know. It was an interesting sermon. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think it does have uh, application for us, um, and so it encourage you to, to go back and hear what God's Word has to say about those topics. We're in Exodus chapter 24 today. I told you that we're going to start picking up the pace over the next several weeks. We've been in this book for uh, right at a year now, and even though we're only a little over halfway through the book chapter-wise, we're certainly going to pick up the pace going forward as far as how quickly we cover it. We're going to look at chapter 24 today. Um, last week, we specifically saw how as Christians, we demonstrate our desire to be counted amongst those who are blessed by God by being known for obedience, truth, and compassion as we faithfully seek to separate ourselves from that which God is working against. And so we saw, again, more character traits, more lifestyle choices that we're supposed to have that flow from our understanding of God's law. So very daily practical application we saw again last week about how we're to respect authority in our life, both God's authority and human authority, that as Christians we reflect a respect for authority. We preserve truth and justice. We looked at some of the nuances of how to not uh, be guilty of spreading false reports, uh, how we're to be truthful and honest and to uphold truth and justice in our dealings with one another. We talked about how we're to help our enemies, that when we see our enemies in trouble, we don't relish in their downfall. Instead, we seek to help them. And then we talked about not worshiping our jobs, the idea of the rest that is supposed to come. And so Israel had guidelines for Sabbath rest and even year, uh, year rest that were supposed to come as well. And so we talked about how that was to help confine their perspectives on jobs and work and money and resources and to see God as the provider of those things. So we saw application for us there. And then we ended looking at the promises that God had for providing the angel of the Lord, who we said is uh, a, a reference to Christ, one who was going to go before them, protect them, and guide them, and kind of pave the way through the promised land for them. We talked about how he goes before us, so we should absolutely follow him towards what he has planned for us. And then we also talked about how he works against anything that would hinder what he has for us. And so we talked about not making alliances or covenants with those things that are against God. And so we talked about just the, the human relationships that we have, that we're to uh, to be unified with what God's trying to do. We're going to actually talk more about that today because I felt like we had to kind of rush through that last week for the sake of time. So we're going to come back to the end of chapter 23 as we get into today's uh, text. So Exodus 24, we're looking at uh, what it means to obey while waiting, to obey while waiting. Let's look at verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, "'Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu.'" and 70 of the elders of Israel in worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearest, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Our summary sentence for today, the holy God of the universe desires friendship with us and has done everything necessary to secure that friendship, calling us to now trust him and obey him as we await the final fulfillment of his friendship at Christ's return. The holy God of the universe desires friendship with us and has done everything necessary to secure that friendship, calling us to now trust him and obey him as we wait the final fulfillment of his friendship at Christ's return. For our kids, Jesus makes it possible for sinful man to be friends with a holy God. Let's recap just real quick what's happened in this chapter. You've got Moses and Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel who are summoned to the mountain, right? And in the midst of that summoning, there's a worship service that really ensues. It involves the the, the, the law being read to the people by Moses, and there's an appeal for the people to respond. Not all that different from what we do every Sunday morning, right? We don't have the mountain, we don't have the clouds and the thunderings and the lightnings that were accompanying this, right? But we do have God's word being read and an appeal to God's people to respond and obey, and that's what takes place here, right? In the midst of that, we also have sacrifices being offered, burnt offerings and peace offerings, some of those sacrifices being burned up completely to demonstrate devotion to the Lord, some of that meat being preserved in the peace offering for the people to eat. We see a meal that takes place after this sacrifice, right? We see Moses and Aaron and the sons and the elders being invited to a post-service meal where they get to commune with the Holy Lord, right? And then it's after that meal uh, takes place that Moses is now invited into a deeper fellowship with God. He's going to be invited further up the mountain where he's going to be given further instructions about how Israel's to live. And in the midst of that instruction being given, the people of Israel are told to wait 
They're told to anticipate. They're told to be faithful and obedient and patient as they wait as well. And we're going to see what that means for us. All right. The flow of the passage communicates some foundational truths for us about what pro- approaching God will be like going forward. Think about how this mountain layout takes place and what it communicates. It creates a separation expectation, right? That God's holiness is going to be acknowledged and it's going to be respected with awe and fear. There's divisions and separations of who can come and how close they can come. And it points to the tabernacle and eventually the temple, right? So we see that later as God constructs places of worship for his people, where some people could come here and then further, uh, other people could come in further and then further to the high priest being able to come all the way to the Holy of Holies, but in a limited capacity. That's what we see taking place here on the mountain. There's the people at the, at the, at the, at the foot of the mountain, at the base of the mountain, and then the leaders are invited further up into the mountain with Moses serving as that mediator who can go all the way into the presence of the Lord at the top of the mountain. This main focus for us is that approaching God is only possible through a mediator. Don't miss that. That's, that's, a, that's an Old Testament teaching here that transpires into the New Testament as well. We still have this that flows into the New Testament. The idea that if we want to approach God, it comes through a mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ is our mediator, right? This isn't just an Old Testament thing that goes away. Moses served as a imperfect mediator. He's limited in his ability to mediate. He's he's not sinless. He's not holy. We see him fall into sin later. He's not a perfect mediator. Christ is. And so Moses points to the need for that great mediator. We need one who can stand between sinful man and holy God, and that is Christ. Some other things that we see here in this chapter that's relevant for us in a New Testament age. One is that we see a pattern of worship that we've already kind of highlighted for you. The idea that we're to read and respond to God's word as an act of worship. That fellowship is based on blood sacrifice. Our, our ability to commune with a holy God flows from blood being shed. We also see that the law has divine origins. These aren't laws that Moses put together based on what he was hearing in culture or based on what he thought was a good idea. These are directly given to us by God. And there's a hope that's attached to this chapter too. The hope is that we can meet our maker and live to tell about it, that we can meet our maker, that we can commune with him, we can fellowship with him, and we can live to tell about it. They get a glimpse of this. They get a glimpse of this through this meal that we're going to talk about in more detail. It points to a greater meal that's to come, right? And we'll talk more about that here in a minute as well. So let's jump right in to the text uh, with our notes today. Number one, we want to remember his salvation. As we think about what it means to wait 
patiently and to obey as we wait, because that's where we're headed with this chapter. It ends with Moses being on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we're not going to get into the disobedience today, but most of us are very familiar with the next part of the narrative of this story, right? Like, we're going to see that while Moses is on the mountain, he gets a lot of instructions about the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the priestly clothing, all the while, there's 40 days and 40 nights going on down at the base of the camp, right? At the base of the mountain. And it's there where the people grow restless as they wait, and they begin to turn their heart's attention to other gods. What were they supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be obediently waiting. And we're going to talk about how we can, we can have a different result than the people of Israel had. 40 days and 40 nights of waiting. We want to wait obediently, right? And it starts by remembering his salvation, Remembering his salvation. Number one, he initiates a call for fellowship and friendship. He initiates, God initiates a call for fellowship and friendship. He's the one that reaches out and says, Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses shall come near to the Lord, but others shall not come as near. The people shall not come up with him. But there's an initiation that takes place here. And all, I hope you see that all through the book of Exodus, it's been God initiating their relationship with the people, right? They're the ones that are in need. They're the ones that are moaning and groaning and crying out for help. And it's God who initiates the relationship. It's God who sends the help. It's God is the one who is rescuing, right? And he, and he does it again here by initiating a fellowship, a friendship with this people, this is the end goal that he desired when he began to even communicate to Pharaoh, let my people go. The idea being that they would be released to come and worship, released to come and be friends with him. God is the one who continues to make preparations and provisions for Israel to come and be his people. It's not all that different from our salvation, right? God is the one who initiates the call to fellowship with him how it works for our own life. Whenever, whenever it was that you became saved, whenever it was that you made the decision to follow, that was an initiation given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompted that in your heart. He called you to salvation. He opened your eyes to see the glories of Christ. That was initiated by God. He opened your eyes that had been previously only able to see the sinful lusts and passions of this world, and God called you to redemption. And the goal is to have you eating with him. We're going to see this in Revelation chapter 19. The end goal of God calling you to salvation is that you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb that is still to come. It's prefigured in the Lord's Supper that we'll partake of next week during Application Sunday. That's a, that's a small appetizer for what's to come when we will commune and dine with our Lord and Savior forever. That's where all of our salvations are moving towards. Even today, and I was having this conversation with some students recently at Trinity, I told them, I said, your loved ones that are dead today, right? Christians that have died, yes, they are in a better place, but they are not in their final resting state, right? They too are waiting for Jesus to come back. They are waiting to get their bodies reunited with their souls, Right? They are waiting for what is still to come. So yes, they're in a better place to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord, but they are waiting as well. They are longing and anticipating the day when the father tells the son, go get them. 
go gather them all together and let's eat. I mean, it's a longing, it's a desire, it's an expectation for it to happen. The goal is to have us eating with him. He wants our friendship. He secures our friendship. He enjoys our friendship. We're gonna see how that kind of unfolds in this chapter. He wants it. He reaches out, he communicates, I want you to come to me. The sacrifices that we're gonna see help secure that friendship. And then we see a taste of what it looks like to enjoy that friendship as these people are invited to eat with him. But he initiates a call for fellowship and friendship. Number two, he initiates a command to follow. He initiates a command to follow. Moses reads out again the law, the commands, the expectations for the people. And faith and response is to follow. It's to come through the reading and the hearing of God's word. The people respond to what God calls them to do. The Ten Commandments and the subsequent guidance that we've seen over the last several weeks, right? So the Ten Commandments come in Exodus 20, and then in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, we've seen application of those laws to their daily lives. We've done our best to show you how that also applies to our daily life. But those things are gone over. They're rehearsed to the people with an expectation that they are to respond, to hear it, and agree to it. It's just like our salvation, right? God is the one who initiates through his word the call to follow him. Whenever you got saved, there was was an attachment of whatever was happening to the word of God. The word of God was given to you, whether it was spoken in a sermon like this or whether it was in conversation with an individual who sat down with you. There was a call to follow him. There was a call to obey him. There was a call to submit to him. It was based on an appeal through God's word, just as the people of Israel received it on that day. Why should they follow? Why should they obey? Why should we? He's already shown himself to be the creator and the redeemer, right? He he did that as he began to lay out the covenant. He established that he has the right to demand whatever he requires of us, right? He has that right. He's our creator and he's our redeemer, but he's also shown through the law that he's holy and just. What does that mean? It means that he's always right and he's always good, Not only does God have the right to demand that we follow him, he has reason to demand it too. And that's that's where we miss it a lot of times, right? Like a a lot of people miss that there's great reason to follow him. It's not just that he's our creator and he demands it, and because he's our creator, we should do it. He has the right to demand it, but he's also given us great reason to follow him too, right? He's always right. He's always good. He's just, he's holy. His laws are the best for living. The question that I would ask of us is, are we determined and resolved to obey God because we believe he is both good and right, no matter our circumstances? Are we determined to do what the children of Israel were called to do as well, to follow him, to obey him, to trust him because he's good and right? That's what helps us stay tethered to him, right? When the temptations of the world flow and our young people specifically find themselves in tempting situations where it feels right to do differently than what God calls us to do, it's in those moments where we have to remember he's good and he's right all the time, right? That the things that he calls us to, they're good and they're right. He's holy and he's just. There's no reason to deviate from his expectations and his plans. 
If we're committed to, to, to resolve to obey him and to follow him, we also have to be committed to avoiding the influences that are contrary to his ways and the activities that he came to destroy. That's where we saw at the end of chapter 23. He says, we're about to go into the promised land and I'm removing these people and begins to list off groups of people. And why are we removing them? Because they worship false gods. They give themselves to other ways of life, right? And so he says, we're removing them. And by removing them and putting you there, you can't do what they do. You can't live how they live. There's to be separation. There's to be difference, right? Same call is given to us today too, right? Light can't have fellowship with darkness. There's to be separation. There's to be difference. We can't call ourselves believers. We can't call ourselves Christians and live like the lost world, he says, be determined and be resolved to obey him, to follow him because he's good, because he's right. Moses gives them the goodness and the rightness of God by reading out these rules and laws once again and appealing to them to obey. Verse four says, he wrote down all the words of the Lord. He spoke them and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He initiates that call for friendship. He initiates a command to follow him. And then number three, he initiates a cause for forgiveness. He initiates a cause for forgiveness. We're called to stand before a holy God and to worship him with obedience, but we can't do it. So a way for forgiveness needs to be established. See how this covenant between God and Israel gets confirmed and sealed with blood because the shedding of blood is the key to forgiveness. After the people have said, yes, we will follow. Yes, we will do all that you command of us. It's as though the Lord anticipates not possible, not doable, right? It's why the sacrifices are built into the law because they're not gonna be able to do this. Moses rose early in the morning, verse four says, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He gathers men who help him and they begin to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And he takes half the blood and he puts it on the in basins and half the blood he threw it against the altar. And then what does he do? He takes it and begins to sprinkle the people with it. He says he took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The shedding of blood is the key to forgiveness. The blood is sprinkled on the people and it signifies they're the recipients of the benefits provided by the shed blood. It's just like our salvation, right? That God has satisfied his wrath towards our sin and covered us with the blood of his sacrifice. Romans chapter five, verse nine. Romans chapter five, verse nine says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's through his blood that we are saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. One more passage I want to draw you to. It talks about how God has sprinkled us with the blood of his son. Hebrews chapter 9. Now here's what's unique about Hebrews chapter 9. This is where it should give you some, some, some chills to think about this. That 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the author of Hebrews writes this, which means there would have been churches at that time who would have read it and used it as their sermon content, right? So the author of Hebrews, the preachers of that time would have stood up and said, people, 
A long time ago, you'll remember that there were the Israelites at the mountain and there were sacrifices offered to make it possible for man to fellowship with God. And then they would have relayed how that paralleled with what Jesus did. And now, 2,000 years after that, we sit here today, I stand here today and I say, people, a long time ago, the author of Hebrews talked about a long time ago. Like that's crazy to think about that thousands and thousands of years have passed since the Mount Sinai situation. And preachers have come and gone who have relayed back to that setting. And the author of Hebrews talks about this specific passage, Exodus 24, that we're reading about right now. In verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's talking about how there was value in the Old Testament for those animal blood sacrifices to be sprinkled on the people, but it was insufficient. We know that. That's why it pointed to a greater sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we could go and camp out here for an extremely long time. I want to read that to you to reference it, though, that this is what we're reading Exodus 24 for. This is why we're studying it, because it goes all the way back here where God establishes that relationship with him comes through a mediator. Relationship with him comes through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But back then it was an insufficient shedding. It was an insufficient forgiveness. Jesus shows up as the greater mediator, right? And it's through his forgiveness, his blood that shed, that we're completely purified, that we're completely forgiven. Everything in Exodus 24 points to what happens in Hebrews chapter 9, that Jesus is our salvation. So as this is unfolding in Exodus 24, it points to our salvation, right? The initiating of God to call us to fellowship, the initiating of God to command us to follow him, and then the initiating of God realizing we can't follow him, so a way for forgiveness has to be established. That's our salvation, right? And we need to remember it. Because as we wait for Jesus to come back, we need to remember he's not finished with it yet. 
as we get restless and we get enamored with the things of this world and we're tempted to stop following him potentially, to, to go wayward in our pursuit of him, we've got to remember, hey, my salvation started this way and it's all about him and I'm waiting for him to complete it. I'm waiting for him to complete it. I can't leave before the completion of it. Which ties into point number two, to remember his promises. To remember his promises. Now this takes us back into... Um, takes us back into Exodus chapter 23, where we left off last week. So the children of Israel are experiencing this salvation, and they're about to be given the, the, the charge or the command to, uh, to, to, to stay obedient as they wait for Moses to come off the mountain. Now, if you know Exodus 32, you know the people begin to doubt whether Moses is okay and whether he actually is coming back. And so they, they start to, to conjure up the idea that they need something to hold them over, and that's where the golden calf comes from. But they didn't have to grow impatient because they could remember what was already promised in Exodus 23. To remember his promises, that he's guaranteed that his plans are going to succeed, Right? It says in verse uh, 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. He promises that he's going to bring them to the promised land and will ensure their arrival with his guidance. Don't miss how significant that is. We talked about it last week. The the spies that begin to doubt whether they're going to be successful in the promised land and they say, hey, we shouldn't go in there. They've forgotten this promise that God had already said, we're going in and we're going to be successful right? We too can't forget the promises of God that we're on the right team, that we're waiting for Jesus to come back, and that we will be successful, that the, 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 the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against the church, that we're going to continue to see disciples made from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We're on the right team. We're on the victorious team. He's guaranteed that his plans are going to succeed. Number two, he's guaranteed that his provision will satisfy Now, we talked last week, he promises that he's going to give them exactly what they need to ensure their arrival in the promised land. We said their specific promises were for them at that time in their circumstances, right? Because he promises food, he promises good health, he promises fruitful wombs, because he's growing a nation and he knows that he's about to to, uh, wipe out a good portion of their nation, right? Only a few of them are going to actually go into the promised land because of their rebellion, which means they need super fruitful wombs to keep the nation of Israel going, right? So our promises look different today, but he has given us the promises that we need to know that his provision is going to satisfy what we need for our faith. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the same type of promise. The author of Hebrews says, God has promised to equip you with every good thing that you need for your faith to accomplish his purposes for your life. That's a great reassurance for us. It's a great promise to hang on to. Number three, he guarantees that his purposes will be timely. He promises he's going to drive out every obstacle that would prevent them from reaching their home, right? He talks about in Exodus 23 that all these people are going to be extinguished, but not too quickly. Not too quickly, that it's going to be in a timely manner. 
He says in verse 29, I'll not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to do things in your life as your maturity warrants it. As you're mature enough to handle the next thing, then I'm going to give you the next thing. That also seems like how our salvation works, right? That God doesn't just give us everything that we desire and want for our life. He gives it to us in stages as we mature, as we show responsibility to handle it. I put in my notes, God's faithfulness should never be measured by human schedules. Think about that. God's faithfulness should never be measured by human schedules. The New Testament talks about how scoffers will come and say, where is the Lord's return? Where is the promise of his coming? Right? And what, what, what do the New Testament authors tell us? Don't misinterpret his delay as though he doesn't care or that he's wavering on his promises. Right? His delay is intentional. He desires that all would come to repentance, that none would perish. Right? We can't operate off of human schedules to determine God's faithfulness. He'll always be behind based on what we think he should be doing at the time. That's just how he operates. But what we have assurance of is that it's intentional. It's not because he's busy, right? Like all of us have people in our life who don't do things as quickly as we'd like them to do, and it's not timely and intentional. It's because people forget or they get busy and we have to remind them, hey, this needs to get done. That's not how we operate with God. He's not behind, he's not busy, and he hasn't forgotten all of his fulfillment of his promises are right on time. They're purposeful, all right? And, they're, and they're, they're, they're determined by our maturity and how we can handle certain things given to us. Those are great promises to remember as we wait for the return of Christ ourselves. That his plans will succeed, his provision will satisfy, and his purposes will always be timely. The last thing, number three, is that we need to remember his return. To remember his return. Right, So these sacrifices happen, he's sprinkling them. Verse 9, Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. He didn't lay a hand on the chief men of Israel. They beheld God and ate, and they drank. Number one, what we have tasted should compel us to be patient. What we have tasted should compel us to be patient. Think about what happens here. The leaders of Israel were given the opportunity to taste the potential of what could be fellowship with the Father. Now, we, we joke a lot about Christians and, and Baptists specifically that like to eat as part of their church experience, right? And sometimes we think like, hey, food's not that important. Like we can discard it and not make it a part of our gatherings. But I think there is a significance for it. Because we eat with people that we believe belong to us, right? Like there, there's a fellowship aspect that typically comes when we eat with people. It creates a sense of belonging, right? God's not just operating from a distance and saying, you guys do this and follow me and don't worship other gods. Like he brings them into a belonging type fellowship. He invites them to come and commune with him. And they're permitted to see some semblance of God here. Now, we've been talking about this a lot with our eighth graders in Bible class. What does it mean to see an invisible God? Is that even possible? Well, we know it's somewhat possible because God's making his presence known in such a way where they see him. 
Ezekiel has a really similar experience in chapter 1, verse 26 of his book. Look at the similarities. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. Right? Sapphire mentioned in both settings. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were a gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now we go back to Exodus 24. What do they see? It says, they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. We don't get the details that Ezekiel gives, but it seems to be a real similar type situation because they're seeing under his feet. Ezekiel talks about looking up and seeing upward, right? This picture of, of one sitting on a throne. But you'll notice that the appearance of is used repetitively, right? Because it's like, I can't tell you exactly what it is. I'm trying to describe it in human terms as best I can. What we do know is that it was a vision of God in some form of manifestation, which rendered a divine nature discernible to the human eye. They couldn't see enough of it. And here's what I think is important. They couldn't see enough of him to create him in a graven image format. Like God protects them from that, right? You can't have graven images. You can't try to take creation and worship creation. He's like, I'm gonna show you enough of me, but I'm gonna keep enough back to where there's still a lot of mystery, right? Because you're not gonna be able to make an idol of me. You can make a golden calf, but you didn't see a golden calf and you know that, right? Like there's protection here in how he even reveals himself. But he does reveal enough of himself so Israel knows they are coveting with a real God in a real presence, right? There's no doubt about this here. There's a real God that we're making a covenant with. His presence is really here. We can see enough of him to know that. There's a glimpse of his majesty, his glory, and his friendship that gets felt through this meal. And I think the most significant part of the meal is not what they see, but it's really what doesn't happen. Notice what could have happened but doesn't. We don't get the details of what they see as much as we get verse 11. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Why is that significant? Because we're told that no man can see God and live. And yet they're in the presence of the divine and they're allowed to be there. The idea that he didn't raise his hand implies that he could have. He could have struck them dead. They're, they're, they're sinful, right? Right now, they're only covered by the blood of animals, which is not good enough. What does Romans 3 say? It says that he overlooked the sins of the Old Testament because he knew that Jesus' blood was coming. So while they're covered in animal blood, what, Jesus, what God really sees is Jesus' blood in the future applied to them, and they're allowed to eat with him. And they're allowed to live to tell about it. And that gives us hope as well that we too will be able to commune with him and live to tell about it because of the same blood. Not the animal blood that they actually felt, but the blood that God was really seeing, and that's Jesus's blood. We're sprinkled with it. We get to enjoy fellowship with him, and he won't raise a hand against us. That's a glorious promise because we deserve every hand that he has to be raised against us. 
We're sinful, rebellious, we're not holy like he is. And yet he desires friendship, and so he's given a cause for forgiveness. He's worked it all. He's secured it all for us. He invites us to taste and see that he's good and to lead us into a deeper relationship with him. Psalm 34, 8 says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. Hebrews talks about for the people who've tasted and have rejected, there's not a sacrifice left for them. Because we're supposed to taste of the Lord, and if we decide that he's good, then we commit to following him. And Peter says, if you've tasted that he's good, live like it. Put away all the malice and the deceit and hypocrisy. Those are things we've been talking about in Exodus. If you've tasted that he's good, right? We wait for Jesus' return. We remember that he's coming back, and we we wait patiently and obediently. Why? Because we've tasted enough of it to say, I want more of that. I want more of that. I want to be Revelation 19, I want to be there. Verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down on his feet to worship him. He said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the end goal of our salvation, to not just taste it, to experience it fully. This is what we're longing for. These people got a taste of it at the mountain. They should have tasted it and seen how good it was. They failed in that. They couldn't wait 40 days and 40 nights to see Moses again and to get further direction. May it be that our outcome is different. Number two, what we have been told should compel us to be patient as well. What we've tasted should compel us to be patient. What we've been told should compel us to be patient. Just like our salvation, he too has promised to sustain our faith, to finish the work started in us, to ensure we are blameless to the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. How do we we wait patiently? How do we obey in our waiting, because we've been waiting longer than 40 days and 40 nights. There's probably not, there, there's very few people in here that have only been saved for 40 days and 40 nights, right? We've been waiting a lot longer for Jesus to come back. How do we, how do we wait obediently? Well, we need to remember that our salvation is not done. We need, to, we need to go back and remember our salvation, right? Because that inspires us to remember how great he is and why we should wait for him. We should remember his promises, We should remember what happens when he comes back, right? The tasting that we have already had, the goodness, the rightness that we know about him. Man, that should keep us hanging on to him as we wait for him to come. 
The application is how do our actions compare to that of Israel as we wait for the return of Jesus? After this meal, Moses is called further, right? It says, verse 12, Come to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And here's what he says to the elders. Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. What's supposed to happen while Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights? Israel was called to start living out their obedience in the intermediate in anticipation of what would be normal life when Moses returned. It's exactly what we're called to, right? This is what he says. Moses says, I'm going up here with God and I'm going to come back until I do do what you're supposed to do. And if there's a dispute, you go to Aaron and her about it. He says, start doing what you've already been called to do. Like y'all live normal life for 40 days and 40 nights. And when there's a dispute, come to Aaron and her and they'll help you flesh out how God's word's supposed to be lived in this circumstance. It's the same thing that we're called to. We're called to live like Jesus. First John says, those who have the hope of him coming back and purifying them live pure now. We live pure now in anticipation of him coming to purify us completely. So I challenge you with this. Just as Moses would have challenged the people then, he read the word of God and then he said, what are you going to do? And they said, we're going to obey it. How do our actions compare to that of Israel as we wait for the return of Jesus? We know they turn to idols. That's what they do and we'll get to that. We have to be careful that we don't as well. Now, now here, we've talked a lot about idols and I'm just going to close with this thought and we'll be done. Super easy for all of us to say, I don't have idols in my life, right? Because nobody wants to say they have idols in their life. I would challenge you to ask yourself, what does it look like for certain things in my life to become idols if they're not right now? Because that may help you identify idols that are there that you're just not willing to admit are. Right? So think about the things that we would say could become idols in your life. Your family could become an idol. Your hobbies could become an idol. Your money, your job. Right? And all of us would, would want to say this morning, those things aren't idols in my life. I love them the way that I should love them. But I would challenge you to say, what if I really did kind of fall off the edge and my family did become an idol? What would that look like? What would that mean so that I don't let that happen? right? What would it look like for a hobby that I say I enjoy appropriately and with moderation? What would it look like for that hobby to become an idol? Like fantasize a little bit and say, this is what that would be like if it were an idol in my life so that it never becomes that. What you might find is it is an idol because that's what it is right now in my life, right? Like we want to say that we don't have them. I would challenge you to say, what would it look like for that thing to be an idol in my life? That may be where we get the most honesty when it comes to, are we being like the children of Israel? Are we turning to golden calves as we wait for him to come back? They have this great experience. Man, we just got saved and we've gotten a taste of the feast. And man, we can't wait for this to all come to fruition in the promised land. Moses says, hey, that's coming. 40 days and 40 nights, I'll be back. And they can't wait, right? They, they, they can't. And they start turning and they, they turn to disobedience. We're waiting as well. Let us not turn to disobedience. Let us wait by remembering his salvation. Let us wait by remembering his promises. Let us wait by remembering he is coming back. Let's not be like Israel saying, what's happened to Moses? Like, is he coming or not? 
We don't want to be like that. We don't want to say, where's Jesus? Is he coming back or not? He is. And when he does, the marriage supper of the Lamb happens. Let us all be there. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We don't deserve it. We do not deserve friendship with you. And yet you've given it to us. You've made it possible. And we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blood that's been sprinkled upon us. We thank you that that what that means is that we enjoy the benefits of one who died in our place. We thank you that when you look upon us now, you look and see the perfection of Jesus. We're thankful that we get to commune with you and live about it and talk about it and tell others about it, that we don't die now in your presence. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that as we wait for Jesus to come, that we would wait obediently. Lord, protect us from turning to idols. Protect us from turning to the things of this world for pleasure and satisfaction. Lord, help us to live lives purely as we wait to be purified by you at the return of your Son. Lord, give us a a willingness to be honest enough with ourselves to say, are certain things idols in my life? What would it look like for them to be idols in my life? Lord, I pray that you'd convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, help us to cry out as Israel did and say, Lord, we'll obey whatever you call us to do. Help us to realize that part of that obedience is confessing where we're wrong right now and letting that be covered by the blood of Jesus. In your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.